0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. In this second episode of our 2021 summer season of Strange New Worlds, we have a real special treat. Science fiction writer Dr. Una McCormick is with us to talk about the scientific themes in her Star Trek Picard novel The Last Best Hope, which hit shelves in 2020. But before we get to that, this is your final reminder that Strange New Worlds is going live on Sunday, July 18, at 5.45pm Pacific Time. I'll be joined by a crew of fellow scientists, many of whom I've never had on Strange New Worlds before, to talk about intersectional diversity in STEM and Star Trek. We're broadcasting from the ITIC Podcast Festival, hosted by our friends at the Woman at Warp podcast. You can find more info about the festival, including the schedule and how to stream it, using the link in the show notes. I am super excited for this event, and I hope that you can join us. Now, back to today's feature. For the holidays last year, one of my siblings got me Una McCormick's novel The Last Best Hope, which is a prequel to the first season of star trek picard about halfway through the book i ended up throwing it on the ground not out of disgust but because i was overwhelmed with an impulse to type an email to dr mccormack right away inviting her on board strange new worlds a few months later turns out she was quite busy writing another trek novel we recorded the delightful interview that you're about to hear. I'd say that there are three main pillars of The Last Best Hope. The first follows an astrophysical investigation into the fate of the Romulan star, a plotline that contrasts societal treatments of science in the United Federation of Planets and in the Romulan star empire. The second pillar surrounds Picard and Rafi's efforts to evacuate as many Romulan refugees from the Romulan supernova's expected blast zone before the star's demise. And the third pillar explains the origins of Maddox and Jurati's relationship and their pursuit of crafting synthetic sentience from routine AI. Each of these themes sounds like a book unto itself, but Una so brilliantly interleaves them in The Last Best Hope, in a masterpiece that resonates with the core of what Star Trek is, a far-future fictional reflection of our own present-day struggles, many of which are inextricably linked to science. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Una McCormick to Strange New Worlds to discuss the scientific themes in her Star Trek Picard novel, The Last Best Hope, which I've got right here. Um, Una, I just wanted to start off by telling you that you are one of my favorite Star Trek novelists every time you publish A new book, it immediately goes on my list, although I may not get around to reading it for a year or two because I'm constantly behind on reading Star Trek novels hence the fact that we are discussing your 2020 book in uh, mid-2021. You know, I heard you had a new Star Trek book that just came out, a discovery novel, and I'm sure that's the subject of all of your recent podcast (laughs) (laughs) interviews. Uh, So I apologize for giving you a bit of a literary whiplash here and uh, asking you to think about it. but maybe we should just start with that novel and um, the, the new one, and you can tell us a little bit about that, um, maybe give us a teaser and why mm. I shouldn't wait a year or two before picking that one up.
1: Well, I've published two Star Trek novels since Last Best Hope. I've published, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've published um, The Autobiography of Catherine Janeway came out right, last right. year. Uh, and um, this one is Discovery, Discovery Wonderlands. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if people have seen season three, um, so I'll try to avoid spoilers, but uh, there's a gap in the narrative that's set up right at the start of season three of Discovery, uh, and this novel fills that gap. Uh, so there's lots of Michael Burnham. It's a sort of Burnham-centred book. Yeah, I'm 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 not sure whether people would have seen it, but uh, I think once they've seen the first couple of episodes of season three of Discovery, they'll go, do you know, I need a book that fills in this gap. <laughs> And we have thought of this for you. So the book exists.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. And I guess uh, as far as spoilers are concerned, when we talk about The Last Best Hope, we should just go in uh, saying that audience members, if you haven't watched Star Trek Picard or read the book, be prepared for lots of spoilers, because in order yeah. to dive into the science and the themes in this book, I think yep. we'll just assume that you've read it. Okay. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, that discovery novel. I think it's mm-hmm. called Wonderlands, right?
1: It is, yes. And since those two have come out, I've written another one. So, uh, wow. so very soon, at the end of this year, you're going to get the autobiography of Mr. Spock. So that's on its way. So, <sighs> Fantastic. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So um, yeah, it may take you a long time to uh, read them, but it doesn't take me long to write them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hence your hence your job.
1: Yeah, exactly that. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, you know, there's just so much Star Trek content these days, and um, you know, I I hear there's a new book coming out like every single month for the rest of 2021, and it's 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 getting overwhelming for me as a huge Star Trek fan, even to keep up with everything. But I'm trying my best.
1: (laughs) And and of course. Actual Star Trek, you know, uh, them mm-hmm. them them making the show, they're making loads of the show. So uh, wow. and that and that's why we've got a feast of stuff at the moment. But you know, we remember the lean years. So when they do, if we hope they don't, but if they do come back again, you'll have time to catch up.
0: <laughs> right. And and it was during those lean years that I first started reading the Star Trek novels, actually. Mm-hmm. It was between the end of Enterprise and sort of like during that span of when we had the Kelvin Timeline movies dropping once every two or three years, uh, where I was really craving more Star Trek. And that's mm-hmm. how I got into the novels. And uh, I don't plan on stopping reading them anytime Good. soon. They're so great. Um, and I, I know you mostly through your work on Deep Space Nine themed novels. And mm-hmm. I'm on record as saying no one writes Kardashian. As well as Una McCormack. (laughs) Um, And I know from your Twitter feed that you have a soft spot for Garrick. So I was wondering if you could could tell us a little bit about you as a Star Trek fan. You know, is DS9 Mm. your favorite series?
1: Yes, it is. Although it wasn't always. And and I got, so I got into Star Trek. Um, it wasn't on so much in Britain during the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. We, we didn't have syndication. We only had three TV channels for one thing until the early 80s. So so they started showing it a, a little bit, the original series, during the 80s that, that I kind of remember. But what really got me, and I must have been about 16, was Next Generation started arriving in the UK. And it started to arrive on um, video cassette, and mm. I would trot round to my local Blockbuster Video and hire out a cassette with two episodes on, and that would be my my wild Friday night as a teenager uh-huh. <laughs> was was watching The Naked Now or whatever it was. So I, I, they were coming out really slowly in the UK, so you really had to commit. So uh, that's when I got into the novels as well. I was reading the Next Gen novels. So I loved Next Gen. I I absolutely adored it. And when DS9 landed, I I didn't think much of it. I was kind of, "Eh, you know, it's okay, it's not grabbed me. And I drifted away. I really got into Babylon 5. And if people remember the 90s, you were one or the other, yeah? You were Babylon 5 or you were Star Trek. And I I was absolutely on the side of the Volons, so I was over um, (laughs) watching that show. And then just as DS9 was wrapping uh, up, I I think uh, a friend of mine said, look, you've got it. you really will enjoy it. And I'd I'd resisted for years and he pressed again a a video cassette of Way of the Warrior on Mm. me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, it's got Klingons, you know, I'm not excited about Klingons, but it is Warfu who at least I recognise and I guess yeah. I recognise O'Brien. And I put this tape on, tape, uh, and um, within about five minutes, Garrick had turned up, and within about seven minutes, which is mm-hmm. when he gets punched uh, <laughs> and cracks a joke about it, I thought this was let, I thought this was great. I thought it was sharp. I thought it was funny i thought it was exciting and and that was it i, I was hooked um so uh, yeah that was that was my kind of gateway to to ds9 and by the end of that i was i was buying the cassettes and loaning them back to my friend so we kind of <laughs> <laughs> accelerated past him but um yeah that was that was i think where the warriors are a really good introduction to ds9 if you're kind of trek resistant or ds9 resistant i'm watching a friend struggle through uh, season one at the moment and uh-huh. I, th- I think I would have I would have said Do you know what pick up with Way of the Warrior because it's it it's great I, I watch it every couple of months and I, I'm, I'm still impressed at how quick it is for a studio bound you know four by three show it's uh-huh. it it's great uh, so that was my kind of Trek intro and particularly my DS9 and Garrick introduction mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, I, I, do remember those blockbuster days and I guess, mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was really the, the Netflix days when Netflix was a DVD yeah. rental service and you ordered things online and they would come in the mail. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, yeah. That was how I, uh, gobbled up a lot of that, um, that star Trek is especially DS nine, um, you know, getting those DVDs mm-hmm. in the mail and flooding the queue for, for my family with star Trek DVDs. And they were all very, you know, like, what, when can we get our, our yeah. movies in? <laughs> no, yeah.
1: there's seven seasons of this, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you know, I don't think, I knew that Netflix started as a DVD. Uh, did, it, yeah. We had We had different things in the UK, I think. Mm-hmm. How interesting, it's always been a streaming service as far as I've known, so that's really oh, wow. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but we, I mean, we had those DVD uh, postal services, but how mm-hmm. interesting, now mm-hmm. I know, yeah, so a similar sort of thing. And the delay in having to wait for episodes, I think as well, which you wouldn't, you know, we could just sit down and watch a season of DS9 over the weekend now, can't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> indeed. Or more. <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah, DS9 um, has been off the air for a while now. Um, but turning to The Last Best Hope and Star Trek Picard, mm. I imagine it was quite different to write a novel that ties into a show that is currently mm. in production that is like sort of, well, actually, I don't I don't know. Walk me through the timeline of when mm. you were writing this book. Was it when they were filming this first season, or how did that all come together, and
1: yeah, what was they that were, process it, like, yeah, it's very, very different. So with the DS Nine books, I've done which obviously while it's all been off, uh, it's uh, uh it's kind of called a relaunch, and you know the stories mm-hmm. that are taking the um, books that are taking the story on, and we've had pretty free reign with those. We've you know we've, we've there's quite a complicated book universe out there now. And, uh, you know, just the Cardassian stuff that I've been doing has got quite complicated. You know, it's carried on a decade or so. Um, So this was a completely different experience. Where we were was that season one was in production uh, and the scripts were being written. So uh, the first thing you do is you sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I, I find that the easiest thing to do once I've signed that is just to pretend that the word picard doesn't exist yeah mm. so, you know, <laughs> and, and and sometimes even words like pickle i just pretend they don't it's much much easier just to kind of expunge that from your mind mm. um, while you're working on this kind of thing so you don't accidentally say something uh, so you you sign ndas this is very common i think for any you know any tv show a, any kind of creative or, or any kind of commercially uh, sensitive project right. uh and then I had access to the scripts as they were being written. So um, I, I was getting multiple drafts of, of scripts coming in and kind of reading those. Now, we'd, we'd set out quite clearly to write a prequel novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to some extent, I, I, I didn't have to worry about what was going to happen because the action of my book was all going to be finished sort of 15 years. It, it leads up to Picard's resignation. So the plot goes from him taking on the mission to save as many Romulans as possible, trying to push that mission through. And then ultimately it's collapsed. So it covers about, I think, about four or five years. But it all ends about 15 years before the show begins. So um, mm-hmm. what I was chiefly doing with the scripts was trying to get a sense of characters like Raffi and Girati, uh, And most of all, and I think this is very important with TV time fiction, you try and get a kind of flavour of the tone of the show. So Picard, the show, feels very different from Next Gen. The way that Next Gen feels different from DS9 or Mm -hmm. DS9 feels different from Voyager. And these scripts were beautiful. They were very literate. They're very literary. They felt very autumnal. And these were the kinds of colours and images and uh, tastes and textures that I tried to weave into the book. So that if you opened up this book, it would feel like a Picard novel. Picard's in it but it's not a next-gen book, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's something slightly different. So that was my hope, and, uh, and, and that's what we sort of did with those. And in the actual process, you sort of um, – I'm reading the scripts. We knew it was a prequel novel, uh, and then I worked quite closely with Kirsten Beyer, who's the co-creator of the card, and also a very experienced Star Trek novelist. And we kind of worked up uh, a sort of outline uh, or a sort of sketch, and then I worked that up into an outline of the novel And then it's a case of, you know, tweaking it here, tweaking it there, and then you just write the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
0: love how close-knit the, the process is between the tie-in fiction and the TV production these days. Yeah. It, it feels really well integrated. I also really loved your description of the show uh, and your book as autumnal. Uh, mm-hmm. This this is something that I definitely picked up on watching the show. There are a lot of like warm colors, and yeah. you know, you've got Picard's maroon sweater, which I just love, and um, yeah. the vineyard and things like that. It's quite a contrast to the cooler blues and purples of discovery yeah. and the mycelial network. Can you mm-hmm. say a bit more about how you made your book feel autumnal and in, in, in a way that, you know, because there are no mm-hmm. visuals in the book. But um, what, what do you mean by that in terms of a uh, literary style?
1: Oh, so I, I mean, these are very simple things like, you know, when they when they arrive on a planet, perhaps um, you know, maybe maybe they're they're passing through leaves. It felt it felt a little uh, bit a, a little bit like writing Rivendell and this kind of thing, <laughs> or you, you know, the 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 fruit on the table might mm-hmm. be just a little bit a little bit overripe or these kinds of things. You just try and feed this in. It's not bright colours. It's not sunshine and and vibrant greens. It's not it's not the colours of spring. It's like you say. It's toned down a little bit more. It's russet. It's mm-hmm. orange. It's a it's a, a, a cooler yellow. Yeah. Um, try and make it browns and this sort of thing. So get the books to feel a little bit like it's all happening during the fall, during the autumn. And and it can be as simple as just you know when they arrive. It is autumn on a planet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of thing you do do it that that sort of straightforwardly. Um, yeah. So you try and you try and build the scene so that things feel like they're they're in the in the evening rather mm-hmm. than you know at the break of day or in the middle of the day. Just give everything this kind of feeling of of late afternoon. Of, um, you know, the twilight um, mm-hmm. of, um, first of all, Picard's career, of yeah. the Romulan Empire, of a certain way of Starfleet doing things, because Starfleet is is sort of going through this um, process of, of decay, one might say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the theme of the book. Uh, so trying to weave all of these in is sort of the aim.
0: I love that yeah themes of decay oh wow yeah so uh diving into the plot lines of the book now um one of the main storylines of this novel follows a Cambridge-based astrophysicist um (laughs) and uh let me know if I'm pronouncing her name wrong Dr. Amal Safadi is that how you would pronounce that that's
1: that's how I'd say it yeah yeah
0: okay uh and then her uh contrasting experiences Mm. with her Romulan counterpart an astrophysicist on Romulus named Vritet am I pronouncing um, his name I think so. My,
1: my my Romulan's a bit rusty. but
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's probably Vritette, better than mine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Vritette, I think that's okay.
1: right, yeah.
0: Okay, and, and so both of these scientists are studying the impending Romulan supernova, um, but Safadi is having a lot more success than Vretet in convincing her peers mm. and her government that the supernova is, number one, going to happen sooner rather than later, and two, going to cause huge amounts of of devastation. And as I was reading this book, um, midway through, I already knew that I just needed to reach out to you to ask Mm -hmm. about being on the podcast because there are so many cool scientific themes in this book. One of the things that it really explores is just the life of an academic, I feel like we don't get to see people in academia in Star Trek very much because it's mostly Mm -hmm. focused on Starfleet, um, which isn't exactly an academic organization. Although every once in a while you hear Bashir or Data talk about, you know, writing a paper or going to a conference. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to know, how did you decide as the novelist to write the tale of two academic astrophysicists uh, and and focus the story on that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So lots of things went into this. It it might be helpful to know that my my PhD was in sociology, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was in the social construction of knowledge. So the social processes within which knowledge is created in my case it was social scientific knowledge i, I was working with a, a government statistical service but i was I, I got obviously if you if you if you study that then you there's a there's a huge body of literature on the the social construction of scientific knowledge and you know it's quite contentious back in the uh, back in the 90s when i was studying it because you know you're saying it's all made up no we're saying it takes place within a social context says uh-huh, something uh-huh. slightly different and it does you know it can impact uh, what lines of uh, of inquiry get followed and, and which get the grants? These these do have an impact with the with the best built in the world. Uh, it's not a kind of rational actor situation. So at the back of my mind, I mean, uh, you know, they were they were PhD themes that I was interested in, and I thought this was a very very possibly a sort of rich contrast to have someone who's embedded in a situation in which okay, let's go for something close to the utopian. Somebody who is. Uh, um, you know doesn't have to worry about funding uh, has mm-hmm. a great boss yeah <laughs> <laughs> and even when you know she comes under sort of public scrutiny so when her scientific practice is kind of challenged she's able to present a rigorous case that people mm-hmm. accept uh, uh, it, this is clearly a fantasy land right? yeah i know i'm just thinking of things i don't have <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so let's 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 sort of get that and then let's get what the situation must have been like on romulus mm-hmm. where you've got someone uh, yeah i mean you it, it's set up as a culture of secrecy and that is antithetical, surely to to scientific practice yeah. you know open access to results to knowledge to oh let me look at your stats oh did you see you made a mistake here or i've had a look at your stats and you've missed something really interesting here or let's line my stats up against yours Oh, we've learned something. Mm-hmm. And he's not, Britette is not able to operate in that way. He's got the Tal Shiar, the secret mm-hmm. police, breathing down his neck because his his results and his information are politically unacceptable. And, you know, ultimately he, he pays the price for this. So at the back of my mind, and of course, uh, uh, what I had in my mind, at the time, what I had in my mind was debates over climate change, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess reading the book this year, more importantly, although this was at the back of my mind as well, but more significantly, people's increasing belief or increasing doubt over vaccinations. So uh, a, a situation in which scientific knowledge is contested and what different societies might look like, the kind of ideal situation and the real dystopian version. And they barely connect, protect Barely connects with anyone mm-hmm. because he, he can't. That's his kind of function in the book is not to be connecting. And they just sort of tangentially connect, but they're, they're a real engine of the book for me. They're a really important, really important part of it. And just what you were saying about not seeing much science, um, I think one exception to that on Star Trek is maybe we, we do see the Daystrom Institute. Yes. Uh, yeah. And in Picard, we see that empty lab. Yeah. It's been mm-hmm. shut down. It's extraordinary when you think about it, that they just cut out yeah. this line of research. And Nope, we're not going to do that anymore. Close right. your lab, you know, put it through the um, shredder. We're not mm-hmm. doing that anymore. So these themes sort of seemed really important to the book. Absolutely. Um, and luckily the things I was interested in. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it interests me too, because yeah. in, here in the United States, and probably in many other places in the world right now, we have this crisis where expertise is no longer trusted. And these alternative facts can spread just as easily as a virus. Uh, And in The Last Best Hope, you really tackle head on this theme of scientific censorship with Vertet Mm -hmm. on Romulus being unable to connect and, um, you know, forced to be isolated and uh, his findings, um, you know, covered up. Uh, Meanwhile, the Federation Seems a little bit more amenable to letting the facts mm. speak for themselves, and uh, yeah, it just seems like the, Vertet's story almost was like a um, a warning, right, of an extreme mm. example that we want to avoid, but that we may be slipping closer and closer to.
1: Yeah, he's ultimately he's he's persuaded out of his own truth, isn't he? he right. uh, I think he's he's kind of um, he's sort of tortured out of it in a way that you know he, he starts to see the wrong number of lights that what he would have to do to his own sense of self and his own his own sort of cultural conditioning would be so destructive that mm-hmm. he would rather live the lie and, uh, or you know, he, he can no longer live except the lie. And so I think the other character that's quite significant here is the, the Romulan senator towards mm-hmm. the end that Picard is turning up, you know, showing him footage of what's happening and these kind of things. He's going, no, it's, it's propaganda, your federation, it's yeah. all lies, it's, uh, and I think I had, you know, are many senators and politicians that we could slot (laughs) into you know it's not it's not climates you know look it's Mm -hmm. it's snowing you're telling me global warming is true well it's you know it's a little bit more complicated (laughs) exactly yeah yeah
0: yeah Yeah. yeah. it also seemed to me that you were making some kind of statement about the open access like trying to promote open access uh to academic literature and, and especially to scientific literature which is a big thing that I have a a problem with the way the academic publishing industry is right now that um, mm-hmm. you know we scientists pay journals to, to yeah. publish our results but to keep it under lock and key unless somebody has a huge sum of money that they can pay for a subscription to the journal and otherwise it's all behind this paywall and uh, and I feel like that's really problematic to mm-hmm. the acknowledgement of expertise and the the sharing of that knowledge mm-hmm. because of the way that the academic publishing industry is at the moment
1: and yeah and that's not how science is meant to work is it right. i mean it, you know it's uh it's like a sort of a parasitical organism has has camped down and said mm-hmm. right we're gonna we're gonna control how this operates and, if you know, all you have to do is publish it on the web. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was the point of the web, wasn't it? That was yeah. the, the whole idea, yeah. Uh, but then I'm sure there are very cogent articles saying, well, you know, this lab equipment doesn't buy itself and mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, we've got to pay our scientists somehow. But um, I think it has unbalanced uh, against the freedom of information, which seems to me just to be critical to how science has to operate, really. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to just look at these results I, I need to look at this I need to look at this person's experiment I need to know I need to know what they did and how they did it and what the results were I need to I need to know this in right. order to be able to do to do this that's just how it should work yeah. right absolutely yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> So Dr. Safadi and uh, Vertet, um, you know, they're studying this Romulan star, which is about to go supernova, and they're making these models and these predictions and observations about its inexorable demise, which will become the infamous Romulan supernova that, you know, is the backdrop for the plot of the TV show or the first season of the show. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of an impending environmental disaster, you already mentioned climate change, um, you know, it's it's something that is happening a lot sooner than everybody will expect. And mm-hmm. will be more severe than um, is thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that strikes me as a very, very strong parallel to climate mm-hmm. change. That uh, you were really uh, hitting on that, and it was was. I, I guess you've already said that it was in your mm-hmm. mind at the time. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to expand on that parallel yeah. between the supernova and climate change.
1: Yeah, I think it was. I think it was clear from the scripts for one mm-hmm. thing. I, I think you can see that uh, on screen, although we don't we don't sort of see much first hand perhaps of the supernova was sort of living in the aftermath of uh, we're sort of mopping up afterwards but it, it, it was clear to me from the scripts that it was being treated as analogous to to climate change mm-hmm. particularly in some of the things we've already said that that people didn't believe it that they uh, refused to accept the science on it that you know this that phrase you've already said oh i've got some alternative facts so (laughs) i've got a word for alternative facts so much shorter one it's called fiction so Uh (laughs) lies um lies i should say because fiction has its own truth i should be more Mm. scrupulous there Mm. um yeah so so all of these things were present and I, i think in particular and um this is a very poignant thing about uh, climate change. Whenever I think about climate change, and my friends of mine who write climate change fiction, cli-fi, or a, a kind of environmental activist, oh. we all know that climate change is happening. But the problem is, is that even though people know it's happening, they doubt their capacity to act to prevent it. And and that gap between what we all know is going on, even... even you know, as uh, I don't really believe the deniers. I I think that I think I I don't accept it. I don't, I don't believe that they don't believe in a way. Uh uh I think the, with the best women in the world that, you know, some of the Babs are deluding, but I think many people just try not to think about it and, and doubt their ability to do anything about it. And the gap there between, well, what, you know, what can I do when I know that my government isn't committed to it or, Mm -hmm. uh, uh corporations aren't committed to it will it really make any difference if i just grab this bottle of water you know and 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 just try and recycle the plastic and i think people individuals are starting to feel desperate about this and you, you can't live in a state of desperation you you sublimate it and ignore it you just you just try and carry on as usual and that gap i think is something I find very poignant. And there's a little bit of that in the book. The supernova is so big and the task of saving this many people is so big that people just deny it or lose confidence or mm-hmm. fall into despair. Picard doesn't but he make, he makes other mistakes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, yeah. I, I th- this is so true that, you know, on an individual level, sometimes it seems like an insurmountable challenge to fix climate change. And in this book, you see characters who view this mm-hmm. effort to relocate all the refugees um, from, from Romulan space uh, away from the supernova's impact as that sort of insurmountable yep. challenge that they turn a blind eye to it uh, almost willingly, you know, just say, okay, we, we can't help them. There's nothing I can do so we should just Mm -hmm. stop. Whereas Picard, um, like you said, really um, believes that Mm. he can make a difference. And I think, I guess we should all try to find that inner Picard in ourselves to try to make a difference for the challenges that uh, that we face.
1: And I think what Picard understands is that ultimately it's not what he does understand, but he, 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 for various reasons, it falls apart. He understands it's something that he can't do himself. This isn't a great man of history story by mm-hmm. any means. The first thing he does is uh, and up front in the book, I think somebody says so, oh, people who do logistics, you know, they're they're the heroes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: The people who get the material that we need and the people that we need in the right places to be able to do stuff are, are, are real heroes. And it and it's all these these small little cogs that added up Effect change, so Picard is clear that you know it's a big operation. There's ships, there's personnel, there's expertise. There's you know we need to build things certain way. We, we need to to make the Romulans comfortable. Let's have psychologists. There's going to be trauma, and they've got all this stuff. But the political will collapses, and when that has gone, there's nothing he can do. And he misreads that entirely. That's this sort of hubristic moment. Is that all of this jigsaw? There's kind of like a big. Missing piece, and mm. without that missing piece, the whole mission is holding the water. So that was kind of my thinking there that, that, that uh, you know these big changes need lots and lots of people, but if a critical piece is gone, then it's going to collapse in some way.
0: That makes sense, and is a mm. perfect segue into one of my other questions about mm. one of the other big pillars of the novel, uh, which is Picard's effort in this refugee crisis, Mm -hmm. um, which uh, again is being caused by the Romulans who have to evacuate the region that will be affected by the supernova. And Mm -hmm. did you draw any connections to modern refugee migrations here on planet earth Mm -hmm. uh, when writing about Picard's attempts to aid the Romulan refugee effort?
1: I think it I think it's impossible not to because mm-hmm. obviously the mass migration of people is is pressing and it's going to get more and more pressing as you know more of the earth becomes flooded or uninhabitable right. and and pressures arise on you know more temperate regions or or just you know places that are the next place along so it's impossible not to be thinking about multiple refugee crises at the moment I I think um it's quite a downbeat book in many ways, in that I think it, 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 it ends on a note of failure, that mm-hmm. his attempts to, all his attempts to kind of um, build consensus and um, build collaboration and um, allow diverse cultures to sort of work together hand in hand, they, they all seem to fail. They yeah. All seem to fall apart, and, and he 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 loses it. This is a defeat for Picard at the end of this book. I mean, we, we've got the show, so you know yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. that's where you're intended to go next. And the assumption is that you're not likely to read a Picard novel unless you're interested in watching the Picard show. Mm-hmm. Uh so um, so it, it it's an unusually downbeat uh Star Trek book in many ways, because I think usually with Star Trek we would be focusing on the um the optimistic ending or you know, a, a rising note rather than a dying fall. Yeah. Um, but in this case, he Picard doesn't find a way through. I think it's not for not not until a long time later. I think other people find their way through. I think maybe um, Safadi is vindicated, even even if it doesn't necessarily um, end in action. At least her truth, the truth, is is out there. But for for many people in this book, it, it ends in a in a defeat or in a um, a very partial victory at best. You know Maddox, his well, his entire field is shut down. Girati's career is um, blighted by this, and obviously we see more of Girati, whose story I find incredibly poignant, actually, in the show. That we, uh, we, we, you know, we see her career shut down really, really just as it's starting. It's like she's got a PhD in a dead field. You uh-huh. know, <laughs> I was feeling
0: for her. Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: It's it's not an optimistic book.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got a question for you about that balance between optimism and failure and pessimism at the very end. Um, but before we go to that, and before we go to Maddox and Gerardi which I want to spend a little bit of time on, I have one last question about um, the supernova. It's one that I'm not sure if you can answer because of NDA or just because the plot mm-hmm. hasn't been fully fleshed out yet, but uh, I'll ask it anyway, and you can uh, we'll, we'll see what you can say. Um, so it seems from your book that the Science from Dr. Safadi's research points to the supernova being deliberately caused rather than a natural consequence of stellar evolution. And this, to me as a space scientist, makes a ton of sense because stars' lifetimes are generally quite predictable. And you yeah. would know that a star is going supernova naturally a long time before it actually does. And, mm-hmm. you know, in Trek lore, the Romulans settled Romulus from Vulcan a few thousand years ago. So like if Mm. they, like, I feel like there's just no way they would have settled a planet around a star that was going to go supernova in a couple thousand years. Mm. Uh, So so can you offer any hints to what might've been this deliberate cause behind the supernova? Or is that still like, I can, in
1: I can offer no hints because I have no idea what they were going to do with this or, okay. or what yeah. they are going to do with this. So uh, I, that's that's something that went into the book, but I, I have no idea where that was going. Mm. So sorry, I can't help with that. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: worries. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just super curious about you know where that will will end up going. Yeah, and, because it seems like both scientifically and maybe even politically mm. on a galactic scale, like very intriguing. Who would who would yeah. come up the Romulan star? <laughs> the I
1: mean, star yeah mm-hmm. exactly that um yeah. i'm just glad that a, a space scientist could read this book and not be throwing it at the wall to be honest because <laughs> <is. laughs> yeah. my my scientific qualifications kind of stopped at 16 i mean i've you know i've got some stats but but mm-hmm. that's kind of it but uh certainly not any astrophysics <laughs> no
0: i i am I'm very impressed i mean thank uh, you yeah it's uh yeah um, okay, so now let's let's turn to the uh, the other big pillar of this book, which is Bruce Maddox and Agnes Tarotti and um, the beginning of their scientific and um, non-scientific relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, when I watched season one of Picard, I actually, was very concerned about the relationship between Agnes Mm -hmm. Girardi and Bruce Maddox. And the reason is because in my field of study, astronomy and planetary science, we've had a recent wave of incidents of older male professors sexually harassing younger Mm -hmm. female students. So this like Me Too movement is very, very raw stuff. And learning that Girardi and Maddox had an intimate Student professor relationship mm. kind of set off red flags for me as I was watching the show, but your book explains their relationship in a way that seems a little bit less creepy, I guess. Um, you know that it was consensual and, and things like that. So, can you talk about writing the Gerardi Maddox scenes, especially the romance?
1: Oh well, I think Maddox is a creep. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad about I'm that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> No, no, no! Absolutely, but I, I think what's what's very important is that we're often in Bruce Maddox's point of view. Yeah, yeah? in fact, I, I'm I'm not sure that we go in. I can't remember now. I'd have to check. I'm not sure how how often we go into Girardi's point of view hmm. of that relationship. But Bruce Maddox isn't going to be, and Bruce Maddox, of all people, who thinks he's a genius, yeah. isn't going to be going. And now I shall. Now I shall do the dirty on my grad students. Yeah, of course he's not. No, no, it's yeah. you know this this beautiful young woman is is enthusiastic about his research. Agnes strikes me as someone uh, very gifted, um, very vulnerable. That she's quite easy to. Uh, I don't know. I I I I think she's 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 lonely. She can be very she can be gauche, uh, and I think he moves into that. And he, 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 he practically sucks her dry. It's, um, I, I found those really, really hard parts of the book to write. But we are in Maddox's point of view and nobody is the villain of the um, narrative, yeah? Right. And, I'm, and possibly at the time, Jurati might not have seen it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a very clever man. He had time for me. He supported my research. But I think when Agnes would look, back on that relationship she would see that it it's absolutely not appropriate it yeah. really really isn't i think technically she does have a doesn't she have an md but she is pursuing a doctorate with him specializing right. or a yeah mm-hmm. uh, but but still they're, they're clearly in a teacher student professional relationship right and i think he he um i'm a little hazy now um he it doesn't doesn't he in the book sort of encourage her to keep it secret he wants to keep it a uh, you know he says oh we should we shouldn't be mixing work and let's just sort of yeah which you know oh you know is that some red flags get your red flags Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah there should be warning bells if warning bells were going off uh they should be okay uh and don't be fooled by maddox's point of view Mm -hmm, i think mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah that was really
0: that's great insight from from the author yeah thanks for Validating my, fe- my my cringes <laughs> yeah. uh, during that whole relationship, um, and
1: you, and you should be. And I think it, it, you're in quite a tricky position as a writer because you mm-hmm. can't. Um, if if you're in somebody's point of view, you kind of have to faithfully present that. Yeah. Uh, and i I might think I might be thinking this guy's a creep, but this guy is never going to think, oh, do you know what? I'm a real creep. Yeah. <laughs> so so you can't put it down on the page. And what you can do as the author is say, you know, I think this guy's a creep. Go back to that. And maybe next time you come across someone using justifications like this, you might go, do you know, he reminds me of that creep I read about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And,
1: and I guess that's kind of your, you're in a sort of tricky situation as an author with a, with mm-hmm. a character like that, because you can't, you, you know, you, you've got to trust the reader to make their own judgment. And your judgment was right in this case. He's gone too far with Agnes.
0: Well, uh, turning now to the scientific pursuits of both Maddox and uh, Agnes. Um, So, you know, Maddox has been in Star Trek. uh, Well, I guess he was only in one episode of Star Trek, briefly referenced, uh, I guess, in letters in 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 another one. But um, throughout this entire time, we imagine that he's been chasing this very elusive dream of creating synthetic life to try to understand and recreate Dr. Sung's marvelous creation, which is data. And, uh, you know, in modern day science, the field of artificial life is a burgeoning endeavor and astrobiologists in in my Mm -hmm. field are interested in creating synthetic living systems to better understand how life might begin naturally. But there's a subtle difference in my mind between the creation of artificial life and the creation of, artificial sentient life? Because bacteria are alive, and so are we, but there's a huge gap somewhere. There's a transition mm. between life like a bacterium and consciousness and sentience. And this is obviously mm-hmm. a big and very open question in science, but I wonder mm-hmm. if you've given it very much thought as as, as the novelist who wrote Um, you know, a third of a book from the perspective of somebody, uh, a fictional scientist who's trying to craft uh, a sentient artificial life form. What you Mm. think about this evolutionary transition between non-life and life, and then the other one between life and sentient life.
1: Goodness. Yeah. Wow. So in my own head, I make it a question of personhood and Mm -hmm. um, to whom do we, and of course I'm a, I'm a sociologist and was brought up in a kind of social constructionist school so it's it then becomes a question of um, how do we as social groups negotiate these boundaries and uh, where do we put these boundaries and um, historically we've you know we've been we've been pretty good at uh, not assigning full personhood to other members of homo sapiens so um, you know there's plenty of examples we could think of so uh, I guess in I start to I start to frame it when I'm creating a character as to where that character's test line would be. In Maddox's case, I'm not entirely sure how much he thinks about this. Because re- remember when we see Maddox, is we first meet him, he wants to take data apart. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wants to see how it works. There's no question in his mind of, of personhood, mm-hmm. of, of, of something that could enjoy rights. Yeah. Voyager starts to skirt around the edges of this with the with the holograms, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It treats it a little bit as maybe a little bit as a joke, but uh it, it still it clearly starts to prey on their mind because it's such an inhabited performance, I think, by Robert Picardo. Oh, yeah. That it yeah, it, it this 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 creation has personhood. Mm-hmm. Um Next Gen starts to do some of the heavy lifting here, and I think I think Voyager progresses it a little. I'm not sure that Maddox really thinks of his creations as people. But then I'm I'm not necessarily convinced he thinks of the people around him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Jurati is a is a prop for his for his Mm. ego. So that was sort of my thinking that that's how I try to write Maddox and we do see you know we don't we don't have to live in a world of of, of sentient androids and synthetic life and holograms to observe people who treat other people as non-player characters you know
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> lots of
1: lots of people do that um I I worked with a, a colleague um, a colleague of mine when I when I was an academic I was at the forefront of sort of um animal rights activism she's got some very challenging things to say about this. About um, she's written a book called The A Human Manifesto, and it's about the personhood or the the, the rights of um, of sentient animals and, and mm-hmm. where we draw the line with that. So she would draw the line at guide dogs, uh, for example, um, oh. seeing dogs. She thinks this is a instrumental use of a creature that cannot consent to um, being used in this way. So mm-hmm. she thinks that's that's immoral. Wow. S- Yeah, really, Mm. really, really challenging perspective. Uh, Uh uh, Patricia McCormick, her name is. Uh, mick okay. not mac yeah <laughs> we're not related <laughs> oh, or is she mac she might be Mac. and i can't remember now i a couple of years since we worked together um so she's done some she's done some really challenging work here she's an abolitionist she thinks the planet would um would benefit and gaia as a system would benefit if if humans decided to stop breeding that if we if we wow. all consented to our sort of slow winding down as a species hmm. that would be that would be better for the planets and and um all the other species there's some really challenging work there uh, there's, a, there's a very challenging um it's called antinatalism um against birth okay it's uh, a very challenging antinatalist thinker who thinks that it's immoral to have children because children do not consent to being brought into existence and this this poses a philosophical conundrum for him mm-hmm. um which is you know um, and given that we know that you know uh, in between all the joys and delights you are you are Bringing a, a human being into a world of, you know, pain and sorrow and sadness is <laughs> a genuine philosophical question about whether you should do this to someone who, who can't consent. So um, I think I, I found those ideas really, ch- I'm not sure the extent to which I agree with them or uh-huh, the extent uh-huh. to which I would argue you know i've got my i've got my own thoughts on this but i found these really challenging you know they kind of made my head go oh okay, wow i've got to reframe these questions but mm-hmm. but the key to it to me was was to do with um considering personhood and were the characters that i was dealing with would draw that line and somebody like picard seems to me this would be a man who would see personhood in its in its widest you know there w- there would be no speciesism or or racism or um there would be no question of that in Picard's mind. It would be a, a fullest acknowledgement of life and uh, all its variety. Because he's met so much that's you know, a giant floating clouds, you know, the mm-hmm. encounter at far points. Yeah. Yeah. And he I, I what seems to push Picard's philosophy is that there is always something in in the other that you can mm-hmm. touch and greet and meet and find a kind of recognition of life or or personhood, whatever that might be. So that was sort of my thinking. It's a sort of mishmash of philosophy that I read 20 years ago.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let me tell you that, that this is so fascinating to me. And I really appreciate this perspective from sociology, because I don't often talk to sociologists, but I love this idea of personhood and where do we assign personhood and where is that line drawn mm. um because it gives mm. us some ownership and some responsibility you know um yep. to, to to how we treat other people in a moral and ethical way mm-hmm. and um you've given me a lot to think about uh, a lot of challenging concepts especially this um mm. what was it the antinatalism i've never heard of that before but it, uh,
1: it's I, extremely interesting i i it's well worth sort of going and thinking about it because you, you, you have it phrased to you that way, and you go, Crikey, that, that's actually quite a good point, isn't it? But <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. You no,
0: know, it's, it's so, it, it is very, very interesting to take a step back and think about things from a larger picture, like a planetary perspective and our role as one species in a network of this biochemical dance that we're doing on our planet with every other living thing and also with the natural environment. Uh, And it's just, okay, before, before I say anything stupid, I should think about it a bit more (laughs) and collect my thoughts, but it's, um, it's a big question to what degree should we consider ourselves disruptive to the planet Mm. as a whole? I mean, we are disruptive, but are we disruptive in a, in a sense that we should, as conscious mm-hmm. sentient beings decide that we should no longer exist. <laughs> is,
1: is isn't that a really, question. really, I know, wow, I, I, you know, I could see you literally clutching your face now. I don't I'm know. just, yeah. <laughs> really hmm. challenging, isn't it? Yeah, and then you, I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you, I mean, these ideas are, it, you know, the fundamental interconnectedness of all things is, that's, that's a phrase out of Douglas Adams, but that, the Gaia hypothesis is very powerful. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think these are, these are some really challenging ideas, you know, we, when, and they connect to these things that we were saying before, that we, we, we need a sense of agency in how we're, I think, I think many of us living in the Anthropocene feel that that the way that humans are inhabiting this world has got out of control, that it is unsustainable that it, it will destroy not just us, but all life, around, you know, but life around us. And mm. that there's even a sort of um, the moral imperative. There's a kind yeah. of, you know, this is a really stupid way of going about <laughs> doing this. It's, it's going to lead to our own extinction. You know, it's uh, yeah. um, uh, and, and we've got to start grappling with these questions, I think. And, and mm-hmm. in a in a way that will have impact on on how we go about living. But in a way that doesn't harm it, we can't just simply, you can't just simply revert to pastoralism, go, all right, get get rid of technology. No, people will die. Medicine is marvellous, you know, um, all these sorts of things, Uh, uh, infant mortality low and maternal mortality low and all these sorts of things. But how do we? Yeah. Anyway, I'm rambling now, but I've no. hopefully I've put some ideas out there. <laughs> I mean, this is
0: this is exactly why Star Trek is so wonderful to me. Is that it? It gets us to ask these super deep questions. You know, mm. is the biosphere, is Gaia, better off? with or without humanity. And it, that's like a question that few other intellectual properties would get me to even consider. Mm. And then you guys start to think, okay, what exactly does better mean? You know, <laughs> like, exactly is, is there such a thing as better for the whole planet? Because who's out there judging what is good and bad? Maybe Q yep. is. Q's, Q's out there <laughs> judging all
1: of us.
0: <laughs> um, or
1: Guinan, or the, or the doctor yeah. from yeah. Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very,
0: very much so. Um, okay, so just... Few last questions. Getting now into another philosophical question, you know, because Star Trek has always tried to paint a positive, optimistic vision of the future where humanity has learned to overcome our our failings like racism and scarcity, Mm -hmm. and where Earth is pretty much a utopia. And yet, when I read your novel, Last Best Hope, we see a federation that is riddled with problems that mirror those of today. And we just listed a bunch of them as in in this past hour, you know, um, there is um, this denial of of our ability to act on really big problems. There is sort of a a non-inclusive aspect to not welcoming Romulan refugees into the federation. Um, And we see all sorts of issues in the federation, which makes me want to ask, Una, in your view, is the Federation actually a utopia?
1: So, utopia for me isn't an end state. Utopia mm. is process. Okay, it, it's method. Yep, uh, it's practice. It's uh, it's an ongoing uh, commitment to a, a way of life and being. I, I know that I know that a lot of people push back against Picard because it didn't feel like Star Trek because it seemed not to have this optimism in it. Um, I would say that it is because it's it's asking you to think about what you have to do when entropy, as it inevitably mm-hmm. does, starts to set in yeah. and utopia starts to fall apart. What do you do? Uh, how do you respond to that? Do you put your fingers in your ears and go, la, la, it's just weather? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or do you go, we have to commit to new processes. We have to make new changes. We have to we have to live fully in the world that we are inhabiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to me quite a courageous thing for Star Trek to do. To say we're not just going to have a kind of techno-utopian post capitalist post-scarcity society. We're going to say, okay, well let's let's take the best society that there's ever been and um, subject it to some pressure and see how it stands up. And still I think at the end of, of the show, it it finds its way to to hope and change and to moving on and and living in this new reality. So utopia isn't isn't an end state. An end state is is death, yeah? Yeah. Uh, uh, Death isn't utopia. Death is (laughs) (laughs) death. death. It's the the end of things, guys. That's not great. Um, But but utopia is method and and process and and being and and living fully in the world. And so it can emerge from dark places, Mm. I think, Uh, Has to, has to. Um, That's
0: so so beautiful.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I I didn't mean to cut you off. I didn't know. Oh no, I said no. I I could I I could bang on on this theme for ages. I think so. uh, But but that's how I feel. It's very easy to describe uh, perfect situations, but it's uh, it's harder to make them continue and, and sustain. I think the other thing is that Star Trek is always holding a mirror up to the American project. Uh, and in the 60s, that was, you know, that was a pretty good place to be. That was that was great. You know, yeah, uh, a society that was outward looking, was on the kind of, you know, upswing, plenty of money, youthful population. Uh, it's not the case now. This uh, is this, uh, a dream that's that's flirting with um, fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, you, you feel a democratic decline and end of imp- imperial, um, the end of empire. And I think Picard held up this mirror and said, what do we do about this? Because this isn't what utopia is meant to be. We've got to do better.
0: Right, absolutely. And yeah, I love what you said about um, holding a mirror up to the American project and America mm. has changed in the past 55 years and so still has Star Trek. And I just can't mm. understand Anybody who criticizes Picard or Discovery or any of the new Star Trek shows mm. for being simply different from the way they think Star Trek should be because they grew up with a previous mm. series—you know, things have changed even since the '90s in dramatic ways. And so,
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I, w- I watch some '90s television now, and I think, um, good heavens, you know, this one. I mean, I watched Enterprise recently, and uh, mm. uh, you know, I was I was shocked actually at how sexist it is. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I, like I, it was written yeah. for,
0: you know, uh, teenage men, basically. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and more sexist uh, than the original show, because I felt that the original show, I felt that the original show uh, ascribed personhood to women. Yeah, and I, and I don't feel that with enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I feel like the line has been drawn, and women are outside of that, uh, and it's a very uncomfortable viewing. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <Same time. laughs> I saying, There's me, was loads to love, but uh, it's always very odd to be in a to be in a subject position where you go, "I'm excluded from from full personhood here," uh, oh, wow. and uh, you know that that must happen to a lot of people a lot of the time, and. Um, I try and be mindful of it as a writer uh, and, as a, and as a viewer and as a consumer of material as well. And in enterprise, I was not, I was mm-hmm. not part of that gaze. <laughs>
0: that, that is a really, really like, I'm, I'm so, just so glad you said that, you know, because mm-hmm. I've, I've met a lot of people, um, women and feminists and, you know, Star Trek fans who say that enterprise is not their favorite show, but have never explicitly said exactly what you said. And I feel like you've just, you know, you've, you've spoken the truth, uh, the harsh truth out there for, for, for Star Trek Enterprise and that it, um, it is very much imperfect in that way. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah.
1: And, and what I think throws it into sharp relief uh, and, and and what actually gives the show some power to me is the extent to which the actors are performing against this. And particularly, I would say that central triad of um Trip Tapole and Archer, I think are performing against what they're being given to do, particularly Trip and poll. I think they are there there is almost a subtext of, of tenderness and mutual recognition and regard that is not presence in the writing it's 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 like watching um you know do you see these sort of broadcasts from uh of, of newsreaders from the soviet union <laughs> uh no <laughs> <laughs> looking with their eyes down oh you're probably too okay. young. kind of looking with their eyes down or you know this sort of thing they're, they're reading against the lines and performing <sighs> against the lines uh, it's very poignant in a way um mm-hmm. but, uh, very interesting but um, yeah, I, I, I hadn't really watched Enterprise before for various reasons. I've seen bits and pieces uh, and I watched it all in about a month, a uh, couple of months ago. So, um, yeah, I thought, well, you know.
0: <laughs> is is <laughs> that for say a project that you? No, no, uh, no. Uh, oh, okay.
1: uh, no, it wasn't. It was because I, I realized that I'd, um, I'd I'd watched all the Voyager. Again, I'd, I'd, again, a bit spotty in, in what I'd seen to do the Wade book. And then I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to commit to just watch the whole of Trek. Before we get a load more arriving, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna watch what I haven't seen, and I watched the animated series, which is awesome, absolutely brilliant, loved it. Loved it. And then I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna watch Enterprise, um, and I knocked it back. I mean, I was watching it like, you know, like eating popcorn. It was you know, like I said, I got through it in about um, three and a half, four weeks. But um, really, pro- I, at Carbon Creek, I would mm-hmm. put in my top five of Star Trek episodes. I thought it was exceptional. Wow. And you you see this glimpse of what Enterprise could be, if if the writing could commit, and and more than any other show, there's a poignancy between what that show could have been, mm-hmm. and and how it appears on screen, because it's far too late, uh, by the the two thousands. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I feel like we could go on and on about yeah. Star Trek Enterprise for maybe three or four more podcast episodes, but we should Easily. probably wrap this one up
1: yeah. <laughs> here. You've got me on my favorite topic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, speaking of your Enterprise watch through, I, I saw a lot of your tweets as you were going through that and was, you know, thinking to myself, are we going to get the autobiography of Captain Archer soon from you <laughs> or something like that? But, um, but yeah, m- maybe you can tell our listeners where they can find you online and how to follow your various projects and just thoughts in general about Star Trek. Oh
1: well, I, I do all of my, uh, I do all of my shouting and, and screaming and you know yelling and being delighted about things on Twitter. So at mm-hmm. Una Cormac, I've got a website as well, uh, which um, you know, that's got maybe a little bit more uh, links to podcasts and interviews, these kinds of things. But but most of my kind of stream of consciousness is is out there on Twitter. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, and the last question that I have for you is one that I've been asking all of my guests on Strange New Worlds this year, um, because you know we've just had a very, very difficult past mm. year and a half uh, with the pandemic and various other um, things going on in the world. And I've, I just wanna ask everybody, what is one thing that gives you hope for the future? Um, and it can be related to Star Trek or not, um, but just one thing that gives you hope for the future
1: Oh, my seven year old daughter. Oh, yeah. There go. yeah. Simple as that.
0: <laughs> Simple, beautiful answer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for this rich discussion about your book. Again, it's, um, you know, Last Best Hope was one of my favorite, if not the favorite, Star Trek novel that I've ever read um, because wow. it touches upon all of these important themes that like you said holds a mirror up to present-day society and makes Mm -hmm. you think about these big issues and it was also on top of that written in such a beautiful way like uh, just your sentences are golden all the time and uh
1: and (laughs) thank you a a writer and honestly if you praise a writer's sentences that's 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 the nicest thing you can do so thank you very much (laughs) thank you it's really kind thank you Mm
0: That was Star Trek novelist Dr. Una McCormick on the scientific themes of her 2020 novel The Last Best Hope. After talking with Una, I couldn't stop thinking about two things. The first is that utopia is not an end state. It's a process. Una talked about how entropy inevitably sets in. And, if the laws of thermodynamics teach us anything, it's that it always requires an input of external work to keep the entropy of a system low. And that work is a process, a never-ending sacrifice, to borrow the title of another of Una's novels. The second is our discussion of personhood. You know, scientists and philosophers have danced around a definition of sentience, for ages. Maybe one day we'll finally find a quantitative and universal characterization of what it means to be sentient, or maybe we won't. But even while such a rigorous definition eludes us, we can still assume infinite responsibility for assigning personhood to people, beings, and creatures. Where do I draw the line for personhood? That's something I'm going to be thinking about and wrestling with for a long time to come. Should it include Klingons? Probably. But what about the Targs that they adore or the Tribbles that they loathe? Should a hypothetical Martian microbe have a greater claim to personhood than the microbes that I kill with my hand sanitizer? What I love about personhood over sentience is that Whereas sentience seems like a meticulous medical diagnosis, we can assign personhood to things that we don't yet completely understand, like a horta or a quasion transworm. In an upcoming episode of Strange New Worlds, we'll speak with University of Washington psychologist Thea Weiss about this topic of sentience, as well as the moral standing of robots. And the supernova in The Last Best Hope in Star Trek Picard being a clear allegory for climate denialism reminds me that we'll be speaking to science journalist Maddie Stone about the intersection of Star Trek and climate change on another future episode just around the corner. That's it for episode 118 of Strange New Worlds. Don't forget to check out our live broadcast at the ITIC Podcast Festival, and I'll see you out there.